Hey everyone, welcome to The Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We're so glad you're here. So this is the first of our Convergent Conversations, which took place on September 30th. In the last episode, you heard a sermon on the forgotten Jesus. And the big idea was that Jesus needs to be recovered, not abandoned. But this, of course, begs the question, why Jesus? Does monotheism even make sense in a pluralistic context, or is it offensive? Why Jesus in particular? These are the types of questions we dig into on this night. So my incredibly wise friend, Bob Osborne, who works as a spiritual director, has some great thoughts on why conversation is a necessary discipline in our time. Now, one of the main points of these evenings is not for you to simply come and listen to us talk, but for you to engage in the conversation and ask questions or talk about what's being stirred up in you and in your thoughts through these conversations and through your own questions. So be sure to join us on October 28th as we talk about deconstruction. So here is the first in our series of Convergent Conversations. Um, My name is Bob. I was just telling uh, Phil... There was a website I found a few years ago called Save the Bobs, because there's really no more Bobs being born. It showed a graph, all these Bobs in the 40s and 50s, and then just no more Bobs. Although I met a few years ago, I met a young couple, and they said, I said, what's your son's name? And they said, Bob. Whoa. This little Bob is growing up in this world. Anyway. Save the Bobs is working. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the things we were thinking about last year was just... Uh, the hope that we could take the conversations that happen out of convergence or the topics or the excellent presentations that happen there and then drive them further if anyone is interested in doing that because I think we're interested in doing that. Yeah. We're interested in conversing. And this year you have an amazing slate of people mm-hmm. on the docket. So though these presentations are going to be excellent and for us to dive in further is our opportunity to do this. So we want to converse. So... Uh, let me just say a couple of things about conversation because I'm fascinated with the conversation. I've been thinking about it, reading about it, uh, studying it, just good old-fashioned conversation. Uh, and it happened for me uh, because I lived my life as a pastor, and that's always in the presentation of stuff. And I realized Jesus was hugely a conversationalist. Um, so not only did he present material... <laughs> if you want to say it that way. But he engaged, and it's in the engagement. So think about conversation and how powerful it is. You know, when we, when we start to talk, we find out what's in us. <laughs> so this is where we realize either we have something to say or we don't have something to say, because sometimes we start talking and realize, well, I'm really, not really clear on my thought. Uh, when we put it out there, we test it. Uh, we sort of put it out there and then we might realize, well, I'm not kind of confused or I'm not sure or I disagree with myself. I've had that experience where I'm talking and I'm disagreeing with myself as it's happening. <laughs> so maybe that's just me. Uh, but we also learn together. It's a principle, uh, I think, if we call it epistemology or how do you know stuff. Um, we know it together. We know it because how do you see it and how do I, you know, and it's in that engagement, that back and forth that we uh, not only express ourselves, but learn from each other. So I brought along a, a book tonight by Sherry Turkle called Reclaiming Conversation. And she's a social psychologist and she's studying this in our time. She says conversation is hitting hard times, uh, especially in sort of the college age generation. Mm. And one of the reasons is because of our, she says technology is actually silencing us. We think it's giving us a voice, but she shows how it's actually working in the opposite way because we're just bouncing off of each other in, in our social media. And, and I just said this to Phil before we started, it's all about scoring points in social media rather than truly, here's how I see it, how do you see it, and back and forth. Now, you could say the best of social media shows us that way, and that would be the best of. But, you know, we know how this affects us, and the studies are that it's, it's not serving us entirely well. 
conversation that's genuine flesh and bones together face to face, and this is why, you know, the mask is more than just, you know, protecting us from the virus. It also has an effect on our psychology. Mm. But if we were able to be face to face and talk and really be with each other and listen to each other, one of the things Sherry Turkle says is that uh, real conversation develops empathy so that we might disagree, but we can learn to care for each other and see how each other sees things. I actually think that in our time, we may have new relationships with the varieties of religions. Uh, my wife was t- telling me the other day about a Sikh family and how they were parenting their children. And we, were, we were astounded at how beautiful and wise this family was mm-hmm. and saying, this is so deeply right and wise the way that they were parenting their kids that actually religious people have something to, talk, to turn towards each other and help each other. Yeah. And so it's not just about politics and being in opposition and power moves. It's actually in the human family of hearing each other. As a Christian, I want to express my thought about Jesus and my understanding of Jesus, but I need to see Jesus through other eyes. And I need to understand who he is. So saying all that about conversation, conversation is a deep human good that Jesus, the son of God, practiced in a profound way. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to make that move along with excellent teaching and preaching in our churches or at the convergence, uh, also modeling the way of conversation in our friendships, in our relationships, in the community of faith? Yes. So it's an ambition, I think, right? It's an ambition. (laughs) It's a beautiful way. And then the question becomes, well, how can we do that better? So. With that said, yeah. uh, just to ask Phil a question or two about the last presentation. And if you were here, it was a marvelous talk, Phil. I was inspired. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed about you that you were, you were moved in yourself. Mm. You seem to, I, I think you're a passionate guy, but there was an extra layer of passion there. Can you talk to me about what was going on, what stirred you up for that talk and why you maybe the further thing is why you want to talk about jesus for this whole entire year yeah. what's going on in you that is bringing that about hmm. yeah that that question you know wasn't totally on the pre-sent question i know yeah. i know we're on the we're, then we're gonna get really something a little bit more here. honest here <clears throat> um <laughs> yeah so the last talk uh for those who weren't here was on the forgotten jesus and yeah. Um, you know, part of, the, part of the claim that I was trying to make is that in the same way that Mary and Joseph traveled, um, they traveled for a full day. With, and, and the text actually says that they thought Jesus was with them the whole time. And so literally after a day, then they're like, oh my goodness, we thought Jesus was with us and Jesus was not with us. And then it takes them, I think, another two days to actually find Jesus. And I find that fascinating because uh, it shows us that we can walk thinking that Jesus is with us. Um, you know, and I'm not talking here about the way in which Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with us all the time, but um, not necessarily with us in the way of supporting everything that we present and um, our ways of being. And I think one of the reasons that I'm particularly passionate about this is, A, I'm, um, I think I'm grieving, to be honest. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, this past week, we sat at church. It was an amazing service. Um, we had Holly Gallup. Uh, you should look her up. She's amazing on Instagram, um, indigenous lady kind of talking about, uh, as a Christian, you know, our history and everything. But I, I looked around and I'm sitting with my kids thinking, and I know that some of this is pandemic related, but a lot of it's pandemic related, but I don't think all of it's pandemic related. And having to tell my kids like, hey, just a few years ago, this building was packed with people for two services. And um, so, I'm grieving because I've seen, we've been able to maintain, I think, some semblance of 
people are in, ha- in the habit of going to church or might think it's the right thing to do. And that got disrupted, and um, I'm not sure what's left, but underneath the, the just physical attendance um, is I think we are reaping now what has been sown for generation upon generation. Um, and then more recently, um, so injustices, obviously, so today, you know, we're dwelling upon that, some of the injustices um, from years ago, but also some of the ways in which in recent decades, within my lifetime, um, and maybe a little bit before then, but how we tried to turn the church into a business model. And we had people like Eugene Peterson uh, prophetically pushing back and saying like, hey, we're all a bunch of idiots if we think that this is okay. Um, and, and so I'm grieved by that. And um, I also think I hear a lot of people who are struggling with their faith And the faith that they're struggling with and the God that they're abandoning actually um, deserves to be abandoned. Um, And I know that that's a pretty stark way to say it, but I don't think that that God is actually the God who is presented in Jesus. And and this is why Jesus is so important to me. And and, uh, when I say Jesus, not just... I want to say Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way that... um, that's the way that Paul talked about Jesus. Yeah. And implicit in when he said crucified is that Jesus was resurrected, but the resurrection also made sense of the crucifixion. And so he would talk about that. Um, you know, I was thinking this morning about, the, um, about that strange story. I think it's in Numbers maybe 20, where um, the people are in the wilderness and they, they get impatient with God. They're not supposed to attack the Edom, Edomites or something like this. Um, and and this, this strange thing happens where they get bitten by these poisonous snakes and all of a sudden everybody's dying. And the solution to this was that they were to fashion a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And if the people looked at it, then they would be okay. They would be healed. And what's fascinating about that is uh, the New Testament writers then take that and say, just as Jesus, you know, was on the pole. And so there's this fascinating thing that the thing that kills us uh, and kills others, when it's actually the thing that can heal when it's, when it's put up um, on the pole or on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so religion without Jesus and without the cross mm-hmm. is actually a, a, a thing of death. But for me coming back and recovering the crucified Jesus. Um, the thing that brought death can actually bring, bring healing as long as the cross is attached to it. And so this is why for me, um, I, think there, I think we've lost much of Jesus when we, um, when we talk of religion. And particularly what we've lost, I think, is this understanding that Jesus was the crucified God. And I know of no other story um, that's as stunning as that. I, you know, Rachel held up, and this, uh, the late Rachel held up, and she had said something that this is this is the story that I'm willing to risk my life being wrong about. Mm. And you know, it takes faith to believe in God, but this there's something so utterly astounding about this story of God crucified, yeah. God with human flesh, which I think we're missing, by the way. Um, who was crucified to save the world. This, this is just stunning. And I think we have to recover that, Jesus. Yeah. So it's coming out of a grief. Yeah. It's coming out of a, a sense of something's been lost in the church. We're seeing the evidence of that now in the time of testing yeah. or whatever, you know, whatever we want to call this time. And it's been a hard time. Let's just all admit that. We all feel that. Uh, and we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a precipitating sort of um, motivation to talk about Jesus this year because you're saying Jesus has been lost to us in some, in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when, when Jesus gets lost, um, you know, I'm trying to think who, who the scholar was, uh, uh, Baxter Kruger, he talked about what we do then is we image God in our own image yeah. and then God becomes monstrous. 
Uh, and I think that for many, there is this monstrous God, and we call him Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not Jesus of Nazareth yeah. and Jesus who was crucified. And, um, you know, to your point about this time, I do think yeah. that there is, uh, I think we are struggling with truth right now. And so this is the other reason for me that we need to have, um, to talk about this, but also have conversation about it. Um, you know, as it relates to the pandemic, I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, I don't know, like, what even is the truth? And I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, this was like Pilate to Jesus kind of thing, right? Or I saw um, a religious leader recently post something about, you know, don't believe anyone. <laughs> and it's this whole thing of like, the whole world's a conspiracy, everything's a conspiracy, and there is a certain loss of truth um, that's happening and, and maybe it's happened for a long time and now it's being unveiled mm. I, and we don't know what to do with it. And, but Jesus said, I am the truth. And so to recover Jesus is to recover truth in a world that is um, at a loss for truth, I think. And so this is the other reason for me that we need to kind of have these conversations. Yeah. And as I continue to ask questions, if you guys have some questions or, uh, or Logan, if you have some uh, from those who are watching, especially around this, these two ideas so far, but who is Jesus? Who is the real Jesus, right? Uh, getting Jesus right, I mm -hmm. think that's the big question. Yeah. And then what is the nature of truth? Those are two huge uh, you know, points of discussion for us tonight. If, if you wanna go there, if you have a contribution to make, you, know, you can do that. So, uh, so then uh, we have this very august title, that's very impressive as a phrase. And if, you, if we can all learn this, we can pepper our conversations with the scandal of particularity. Mm -hmm. You know, just throw that around and impress your friends. So what does that mean? <laughs> Why is it a scandal? What does, yeah. What's the particularity we're talking about? What does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, okay, so let me, let me start by talking about Canada. For okay. And please do, um, please do come... Yes. the mic and I'll, I'll be looking out for you um, because we really want you to contribute to the conversation. Um, Canada, more so than the U.S., so Marissa and I lived in the U.S. mainly for the past 20 years. Um, Canada, pluralism is a cultural marker of Canadian, yeah. you know, Canadian, um, the way we view and things. And we might need to describe what pluralism is. Well, this, this is just it. Because yeah. for many people, pluralism is a bad word. Yeah. And I think pluralism can be a bad word. Yeah. Um, and the way that most Christians talk about pluralism, they use it, it's almost like a, a cuss word, right? Um, and it's, it's the great enemy of faith. And so I think understanding, I think there's a healthy pluralism. Yep. Uh, and in fact, you know, you're talking about these conversations. I would encourage every one of you to go to the Faith and Spirituality Center at the University of Calgary. If, if you're at the U of C, um, if you're at other universities, there are similar kind of spaces like that at Satan, MRU. Um, but these are, these are places where, interestingly, you have... Christians, although very few evangelical and Pentecostal Christians, I will say that, mainly liberal Christians, uh, but Sikhs and Hindus and Wiccans and <laughs> trans people. And so I think that scares, because pluralism scares people away, um, it scares often the evangelical students away, but it's an unbelievable space yeah. in the university where literally people are there to talk about their faith. So um, I've had unbelievable opportunities. So for me, pluralism, and I think the University of Calgary actually does a good job with this, is a space of exploring both our differences and our similarities. So um, the lady who used to run the Faith and Spirituality Center would say, look, we don't exist because we think all roads are the same and all lead to God. Um, and she's not a, a person of faith. But she would say, but it's okay to talk both about our similarities and our differences and to honor both of those. Yes. Um, the particularity then of, and the scandal of it for Christians, but also Muslims and Jews, is to claim that there is one God, uh, which is called monotheism. And 
monotheism does not say um, out of all the gods, our God is the best or the top God. If you say that, and Miroslav Volf says this, um, then God is an idol because God is one among and not one outside. The scandal of particularity says there is no other God. There is one God only. Um, so what I'll say, uh, and I'm, again, I'm talking a lot, so push back and say, Phil, you're out to lunch, or like whatever you want to say. Um, I think to go, before we get to Christianity in particular, if we look at monotheism, um, I, there's a certain logic to it. And so I was in my 20s, and amazing story, actually. Um, I, for some reason, living in Toronto, we were in Toronto for a few years, and um, was preaching. And I don't know if I chose this passage. I think I did. I think I read something that was like mildly interesting. Um, but Deuteronomy 6.4 is the Jewish creed. It's called the Shema. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, taught it to our kids when they were small. Um, it is Shema Yitzrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad. Actually, I'll get you, you know, I taught my kids. I'll get you to say it. Uh, <laughs> so repeat after me, Shema. Shema. That was lame. Shema. Shema. Yisrael. Yisrael. Adonai. Adonai. Eloheinu. Eloheinu. Adonai. Adonai. Ehad. Ehad. Okay, now, um, the rabbis used to teach that if you recited the Shema, which you just did, um, then you have accepted the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So I actually just tricked you. Um, <laughs> you have just accepted the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Um, but there's this... This text fascinated me. What does it mean that God is one? And what it doesn't mean, it's not talking about unity. Sometimes Christians think this is like about the Trinity. It's not. It's saying that God is the only one. So it's a very basic claim of monotheism. Um, what's interesting about that is, uh, so I ended up going to this bookstore. And this is an amazing bookstore. On the main level, they had like Joel... Um, Osteen and all these people, like because they had to, you know, s stay alive as a business, so they sold that. I think you literally had to take a step up in the bookstore, and then they had like all the really good books up there. And um, so I went in. I said, "Look, I have, I need, I'm, I have to speak on the sermon. And um, do you have anything on the Shema?" And he said, "Well, a little bit of this, maybe that." Give me one second. And I, I look at him. He goes over the phone. He's on the phone. Yeah, yeah, what about this? What about that? And he comes back. He goes, clear your schedule tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I'm like, okay. And he said, the, uh, there's a theologian in town by the name of Victor Shepard. And uh, Victor Shepard's like a, a big deal, especially in, in the GTA. And uh, he said, you're having coffee with him tomorrow. He'll, he'll walk you through, but bring your questions and be prepared. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, so I meet with this guy, and uh, one of the scholars that he turned me on to was this guy, uh, a, a Jewish philosopher and theologian named Michael uh, Wishograd. And Wishograd talks about this idea of, of the, the one, right, this particular, and says that if the whole heart is given to Yahweh, um, then the issue if there are other gods does not arise because your whole heart is already given in one direction. And so there's, there's an interesting unity and logic that happens here. I heard Rob Bell. Now, Rob Bell um, was like a huge deal and then a huge scandal, and probably most of you don't even know who he is at this point. But um, he had talked about this, this thing that happens with Christians where um, you'll be talking to somebody and they say, hey, the whole church is full of what? What's the word here? They're nothing but a bunch of, what's the first word that comes to mind? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Everybody shuts it out. And so what do we normally do? We say, okay, um, a hypocrite, you know, well, look, we have examples of people in the church that are not hypocrites. And, and so you can't say everybody, and he says, what we need to do is actually pay attention to lean into this idea of being a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is somebody who's split. They're, they act one way, um, with this group of people and another way with this group of people and another way with this group of people. And so they lack a certain wholeness because their heart is in different places. Um, whereas there's something about a person who, um, who has a heart fully devoted in one area 
And this is for monotheists, this we, we would say, towards God. Um, Soren Kierkegaard said, the purity of heart is to will one thing. Yeah. And so there's a wholeness. And so interestingly, we think that the more choice we have, the freer we become. Um, the, the logic of monotheism says the opposite. It says, the more you give your heart to one thing, and particularly if this is the God who transcends and holds the whole universe, the more whole you become. Um, and so y- you see this, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about how in Genesis, most of the Bible, um, it's idolatry that gets talked about. In Genesis, idolatry um, barely gets mentioned. Uh, what does get mentioned in Genesis is this idea that when the heart is um, duplicitous, when it's not directed in one towards God alone, um, you had complete sexual freedom, which lent itself to all kinds of disaster. And this is the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, there's no fidelity to one thing. And if you're not faithful to one thing towards God, um, the implications as early as Genesis is um, carnage everywhere else. Yeah. So th- this to me is the logic of monotheism. Um, where we see the heart given, there's a wholeness that comes to the human. Um, And so I think we have to talk more about that. And then a big question for me then is, and I use this a lot when talking with students who are wrestling with faith, it's like, what is God like? What do you think God is like? Um, And the answer is often revealing, but to me, this is, what I believe is that God is like Jesus. Brian's on. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Yeah. We haven't always known that, but now we do. So to me, to, to follow Jesus, by the way, uh, what follows Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, mind, and strength. And so um, when Jesus is asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He goes back to the Shema, this idea of monotheism. But Jesus is the God uh, to follow to know what that really means. Yeah. That's a mouthful. But. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> it's, sound is coming on. Here we go. Yeah. We're almost there. Yeah, just ask it and I'll repeat it back. Mm. This is a brilliant question. How, how much truth is there in other religions, and should we listen to that truth, lean into that truth, uh, or, or just use it to point towards our religion? That's in, yeah. Do uh, you have thoughts? I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> and you guys have thoughts. Yeah. Um, can I just go back to the pluralism thing? Yeah. Because here's the trickery. We have to be sharp in our thinking. So we get tied up because a lot of times the confusion comes along here. And I, I'm coming to this question. But pluralism is simply plurality. There's more than one. And so we say some kind of ultimate truth claim is exclusionary because mm. look at all these different kinds of people. Um, the beauty, uh, the, the, the reality of the ancient world was that all the wars happened in the multiplicities of gods, mm. not the singularity of God. Yes. The singularity of God is actually a peaceful idea because it means actually it's inclusive because if there is one truth, one God, we as all humanity are gathered under that one God. It was in the ancient world where your God versus my God became a battle, right? So. Uh, in this matter of different religions, I think it's an amazing thing to say there is one God. There are different viewpoints, but I can peaceably approach people under the understanding you talked about the logic of, of monotheism or the scandal particularity, as I understand it, is more particularly directed towards Jesus as the revelation of God. And then say, but look at how God in his... Self-confidence isn't yes. threatened 
by all the, the other viewpoints, and I can be peaceable and even sacrificial towards others. Yep. So that uh, the truth that I can learn from other religions is not a competition. It's actually a genuine inquiry into the human experience. I think there's tremendous amount to learn from other religions. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount because there are refractions of the image of God in humanity, and we can find beauty and truth from almost anyone if we're willing to sit. That's why conversation, by the way, conversation will open you up to that. Yeah. Now, there will be sticking points and differences, but you can peaceably navigate that and, and actually learn uh, from the different viewpoints while holding to a faithful monotheism and a particularity in the, in the revelation of Jesus as the way to God. So I say, yes, you can learn. Um, that doesn't mean you swallow everything whole, you know, whole. It means you learn to discern, right? You learn to distinguish. Is so, that, yeah. Yeah, so. now let me bring something up here, and this is gonna push some of your buttons. Uh, and part of, I'll just say part of the purpose of this, and we talk, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning. If this frustrates you, that's okay. Um, and you don't even, you don't have to agree. I think what we need to learn to do is, and this is not merely self-protection, maybe a little bit, but to walk <laughs> away and see if Phil's a heretic, um, but to actually lean into the frustration and into the questions um, about this. So two years ago, somewhere around two years ago, before the pandemic, I'm, I was walking with a Muslim student uh, just down the street. And uh, well, actually, and here's how I came to know um, several of these Muslim students. And I, a couple of years ago, I spent more time on campus with Muslim students and Christian students. And the reason was because we were in, um, we were in a Hindu temple together for, it sounds like a setup to a joke, it's not. Um, we're doing like this kind of religious field trip called the Kaleidoscope Project. Yeah. And um, there, you know, I was a bit nervous to go on this, to be honest. And so we go into this Hindu temple and you could participate by going up and like giving food offerings to the deities in the temple. And the Muslim students, two of them came to me and said, Phil, dude, we've been taught our whole life to not bow to an idol. So I feel completely uncomfortable going up there and um, kind of presenting anything to these deities. And, and they said, you're a monotheist, you get this, right? And I said, I totally do. And to be honest, I don't feel super comfortable either, so um, come in. So anyway, through this, a friendship began and they wanted to talk about Jesus a lot. So one time I'm reading this book, and this is what happened down in the corner that I started to talk about. And um, my friend Hassan, I said, I'm reading this book called Allah. And he said, what's it about? And I said, it's, whether, it's about whether Jew, uh, sorry, Christians and Muslims worship the same God, mm -hmm. which is a question. And um, just so you know, by the way, Allah, Christians in many parts of the world reference God as Allah, as Allah because it's just a word for God is all it is. And so it's the word in their language. And uh, so I said, so I'm reading th this book and it's about whether uh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. He goes, oh, I'm like, what? He goes, it's so frustrating. I said, what's, what's frustrating? He goes, you Christians have no problem believing that, um, that you worship the same God as the Jews. But when it comes to us Muslims who actually have uh, they reject Jesus as Messiah. We embrace Jesus as Messiah, though we don't mean the same thing that you Christians do. Um, we actually believe, have a higher level, a higher view of Jesus, and you can't bring yourself to imagine that you worship the same God as us. And so there are fascinating conversations. So um, to me, it's, there, are these, there are very, very deep questions and questions that trouble us and maybe should trouble us. Um, but I, I, I do think that there is a lot of beauty in other religions, and, and the beauty is not only just a talking point, but I think God reveals God's self in 
so many beautiful ways. Um, there is a reason why I'm focusing on Jesus for an entire year. And it's because I believe that Jesus is, that, is the fullest revelation of God that we have. But I do think that there are uh, interesting conversations that we need to have and have with an open heart. Another way to say this is that so many of us will entertain various, listen to various political arguments, various um, economic theories. Uh, we will study various psychologies. Yeah. And, and we will think of them as neutral when they're filled with worldview content. But when it comes to religion, various religions, that can be quite noble at times. We don't understand yeah. what does this, what might this be a, a reflection of wisdom or truth out of the human condition that I need to learn from. So it's just a different stance. And our bigger problem actually is Christians fight against each other. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so we're divided amongst ourselves. And I, I would <laughs> say that we, um, part of the scandal of particularity is that, is that we don't believe it enough. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is that we make it a religious idea. Um, this is a new concept that, that to say Jesus is Lord is merely in the religious sphere. The religious sphere as its own sphere didn't exist previously, particularly in the time of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, to say Jesus is Lord was like a massively political statement. It meant yeah. Caesar is not Lord. Yeah. And so when we talk about, the, about Jesus being Lord, um, it impacts all these different spheres that we think of, but we're actually one thing. Uh, they weren't as easily separated back then. Politics, relationship, um, sociology, you know, all of these types of things. Um, the lordship of Jesus as we claim that, I mean, that's the real scandal. And I think we have a thin version of it that just means it, it impacts our religious belief, where actually it should impact our politics, which is why we're doing a whole night on the politics of Jesus. It should impact our views of justice. It should impact all of these. Okay, surely this is bringing something up for some of you. Um, I feel like the answer to my question is just Jesus, because Jesus <laughs> is the answer to most Christian questions. Um, but yeah, like just what you mentioned about how there's even division within the Christian community and what your guys' thoughts on that is, because I find when I get into conversations with people who... Um, say they're like atheist or don't have any religious background or beliefs, they say like, you Christians can't even figure it out within yourself. So mm. why would I even want to enter into that when you among your own community can't even figure out what each of you believe when you claim to believe the same thing? Because yeah. I think we're kind of a pluralistic culture within Christianity anyways. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was just wondering what your guys' thoughts are on that. Such a great question. So this is the tragedy of the human condition that for the most part, we need to define ourselves over against someone else. That's, you know, as, as is often said, the church is the greatest uh, proof of, of its own doctrine of sin. <laughs> mm. And what is sin? It's just this enmity, this pride, whatever this is. If we were truly humble, yeah. if we were really humble, we would come to more truth. Because humility is openness and, you know, it would lead us to better places. Mm. So, so for off, really what the, probably the greatest hindrance to peaceableness and truth in the world is our pride and our enmity and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's the, you know, so this is the point. Um, when we talk about education or learning, you know, it's not simply content. It's, it's a state of the heart. We can only know if we're in a position to be open to learning when that truth actually corrects us, you know? Yes. When that truth corrects ourselves, then, then we truly can be a learner. And so Jesus called us to be disciples, which literally means methetes, learner, be learners of him. Mm. Uh, what's involved in learning Jesus means we start with what? Change of mind, repentance, right? So what you're talking about are the dynamics of knowing. I think the dynamics of knowing, we could talk about that philosophically, but what is that spiritually? What does it mean for us to know better yeah. and to know more? Well, it's, it's more than just sort of content, although content is involved. It's also this posture of the heart that says, 
I think there's something blocking my way to know deeper and better, mm. right? Yes. So that's what's involved in the human complexity of religion and politics and denomination and everything else that's going on. It's not simply difference of opinion. There is a deeper root of all of this. And that's why we have to come humbly towards each other. Yeah. And we have to actually assume, because this is what I would always say as a teacher when I was teaching a theology classes, what are we wrong about right now? And I would pose that to the class. And, and they would go, what do you mean, what are we wrong? Well, what are we wrong about right now? Because we're really sure about what they were wrong about 50 years ago. <laughs> so what totally. are we wrong about right now? And then they start to think, well, and I would say the, the point is we probably don't know, but our grandchildren will certainly tell us. Yep. So I assume that I'm wrong in some profound way. That doesn't mean I'm entirely wrong. And it doesn't mean that I don't have some element of the truth. Mm. Um, and I do believe Jesus is the truth. I believe he's the truth. I don't believe I possess Jesus. <laughs> right. And I don't yeah. believe I have it all figured out. So it's a more humble stance. So I yeah. would say that humility is a, is a posture towards a deeper way of knowing. And, and doesn't this, and if you have other questions, they can be unrelated to this one. But I think this does tie into the previous question for me yeah. a little bit. Because when I look at the Jewish community, for example, the way they approach the text... Uh, is much more playful. They're not afraid to take more risks with the scripture. Whereas I think oftentimes we've trained people, we've trained Christians to be so cautious about, um, about belief that any kind of new idea, we're like, oh my gosh, you can't, don't even go there. It's the slippery slope. And if you, if you even begin to explore it, and so what, what are we left with? It's like, um, either we're going to have to get under our banners and argue with each other um, because, man, if we bend, goodness, we're a heretic. We're heretics, right? Um, or we just deconstruct and maybe leave our faith altogether because there's a dissonance here, but I'm not really allowed to explore it. So to me, that's where I can look at um, the Jews, for example, and say, you know what? They're actually way better at us. Uh, with knowing how to wrestle with truth. They're named for that. That's, um, you know, Jacob's name was, was changed to Israel yeah. because it said, you have wrestled with God and with man and have overcome. And so learning how to wrestle with ideas, um, they do much better at that. Other questions? Yeah. That's good. Online. Um, so this is from, from Kelly. Uh, wondering how we get comfortable embracing or helping others embrace a suffering Jesus when we've had a victorious Jesus as the dominant narrative affecting our culture. Mm. That's so perceptive. So I think from the, from the kind of the beginning, I, Jesus is crucified. Yeah, that's so perceptive. Yeah. So there was this famous book by uh, a theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan, called The Jesus Through the Centuries, where he tracked the dominant model of Jesus at various times of mm. history. Um, you know, so you have the, you know, Jesus as king uh, in the times of the kings. <laughs> Jesus says the chivalrous knight, Jesus says the political rebel, whatever it is. It's an interesting thing because not only do we have to get Jesus right, we have to get the right Jesus. That's right, yeah. Um, getting mm. Jesus right is probably the largest task we have. Mm. And you know that Jesus, that, that sort of triumphalistic Jesus um, is an echo of our own cultural moment when we were at the top. Mm. Yes. I think there have been other times and other peoples and other places where they've identified with the suffering Jesus. And, and maybe we're going to head back there because I said to this to a class just last week, the, the options are either Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to, or that he suffered in a way that he can be intimately with us in a suffering world. We've lived in this little bubble in North America post-World War II that is absolutely unique in human history in terms of what we've been able to experience in terms of normal life, but it's not normal life for most of history. Yeah. So I wonder if God is bringing us back to a more realistic uh, understanding of the world and of life experience, which is not a bad thing because actually that's where you experience the glory and the beauty and the wonder, mm. right, of our humanity. Yeah. I've got much more to say about that, but what would you say? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I was literally just hoping yeah. you were going to, because you had talked earlier this week about this idea of God 
uh, of Jesus not saving us from suffering, but empowering yeah. us to yes. walk like him through it, yes. right? Yeah. As a demonstration. So I, yeah. yeah. There's a book that I, I always recommend. It's called The City of Joy. It's about, a, it's about the worst slum in Calcutta, India. Hmm. And I find it one of the most amazing pieces because in that extreme suffering, you see, it's called The City of Joy. You see real human joy, real love, real beauty, real truth. So um, don't fear suffering. Don't fear it. We should not run away from it because actually we will, actually our lives will be enriched if we were not afraid of it and say, okay, <laughs> I can, there can be dip, more difficult times of maybe you know, physically difficult or economically difficult, but the um, compensations that God makes in those times mm. are so worth it. So I wonder if the image of Jesus where we just skip along the top of troubles hasn't allowed us to actually see the depth and beauty of our faith, yeah. the wonder of it. But uh, maybe not running towards suffering either. We don't right? run towards a, it. Yeah. No, but, it's but not masochistic, but we don't, we don't avoid it. Yes, I love it. Yeah. Who else? My question is, so we're kind of talking about how we've created these different versions of Jesus that we kind of need throughout the centuries and different whatever, like monumental moments and stuff like that. So where we are right now, how do we get a clearer image of the real Jesus, like what you were talking about, Phil, a few weeks ago? How do we create that image in the time we're living without creating a triumphant Jesus or like just small versions that we need? Mm. Good question. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the things um, this came to me just <laughs> one of the reasons that I've encouraged us to read through Matthew five through seven. Is I'm not convinced, and I'm talking about all of us, not just you. I'm talking about myself. I'm not convinced that we read scripture. Um, as much as, as we should, like, do we, how much are we reading it? Um, but we do also have a deeper problem when it comes to reading scripture. Um, you know, I was listening recently uh, to Chris Green, who's a theologian and, and a priest, and he was talking about this, this way in which we've given people Bibles and just said, okay, here you go. And that like, job done. And he goes, we don't just know how to read the Bible. And um, yeah. so this is where the question of Jesus becomes difficult because I can read the Bible and you can read the Bible. And I can say, um, particularly through my cultural lens, well, Jesus is like this, but you have a different cultural lens and you say, well, actually Jesus is like that. And um, this is where one of the things I've become convinced of is that A, um, Reading the Bible just kind of by ourselves, uh, it's not fruitless, but it can be dangerous. And that we have to embrace a, um, the worldwide community mm -hmm. and also the historic community. Yeah. So we have to, how does, does my understanding of what I'm reading make sense to a Kenyan woman? Does it make sense to someone from Iran, uh, a Christian there? And if it only makes sense to a Canadian, then there's something off with Jesus. Um, and so we have to begin to lean into international voices. Um, and so if you look at, like, legit, if, if we're being super honest, if you look, we're doing a little better now, but most of the time that we had church conferences and even scholarly conferences, it was the same thing. It was a bunch of white dudes from like North America and Europe um, who were telling us how to believe in Jesus and what Jesus was on about. Um, well, we're obviously headed, headed for trouble. And so um, thankfully out of that, we have different readers um, now, feminist readers, 
um, you know, post-colonial readers, all these things, which doesn't mean you have to agree with all of them. But what it does is it, is it bumps against our own um, solidified beliefs and starts to poke some holes in it a little bit and say, maybe your Jesus is a little bit too much like a white Canadian male middle-aged guy. Um, and so we need, and you know, uh, I'll also say this is why I think it's so important in the, you know, to hear Eastern voices as well, because they perceive the world in such a different, in such a different way. Um, but in the same way, I think this is why it's important for us to look historically and say, what, um, what has been believed by Christians for the past 2,000 years about Jesus? Um, because you also see reoccurring negative patterns of belief. And I think we're seeing some of them now. Um, you know, I will, okay, well, this might bring some comments. I, I, I saw somebody recently <laughs> say, Jesus wouldn't wear a mask and he wouldn't get a vaccine. And I go, well, okay, so why do we believe that? <laughs> and I think the belief is that obviously Jesus would never have gotten sick. And so Jesus just went and healed everybody. And so we should go on. But what the danger here is that it denies the humanity of Jesus. Like, did Jesus never get sick? Just because Jesus healed everyone and that we're headed toward that. What does the humanity of Jesus speak to us in this moment? Um, and, and so I'm not trying to convince you one way or another on, on vaccinations. My point is simply that um, that is kind of rooted in a Gnosticism which takes the spirit of Jesus very seriously, um, but it takes the humanity, the flesh of Jesus, uh, very much not seriously. And these patterns reoccur throughout history. And so this is where I'd say we need readers, um, people who have understood the church over the past 2,000 years. Uh, you know, who was, there was this little known bishop, he said, uh, that orthodoxy is what has been believed in all times and all places, uh, and then there was one other thing that with one other thing they had said with regards to how it gets worked out today. So to me, that's why these other voices um, are deeply, deeply important to us uh, of leaning into that. And again, does it make sense with the cross? Because if, it, if it's not a cross-shaped, here's a word to learn, cruciform. Cruciform means cross-shaped. If it's not cross-shaped, um, and it, our power begins to look more like the world's power and less like the cross, we've run into a problem immediately. And so this is where, again, I'm insistent upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then need to be informed on what that means by people from all over the world and throughout all times. So. Yeah. Well, we have to simply read our Gospels, don't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm going to lobby. Uh, there's so much I could say about this because I'm teaching a course on it right now. But yeah. I'm going to lobby for paper Bibles. For what? Paper. Paper Bibles. The old-fashioned. Yeah, not, yeah. I'm not going all the way back to the scrolls. But I'm going to say paper. Yeah. Uh, there's mm. something about the distraction and our inability to... So I really try to help people in meditative reading. And, you know, if you start reading the Gospels and then reread them and then go through the years and then, you know, it's this slowly dawning, you know, I'm, I'm in my 60s now and I'm learning, still learning about Jesus. So it dawns on you as you stay with it, you know, but start to get it into your system. Mm. Read the Gospels, start to know the stories, read them meditatively. Yeah. But you're right, we have to read it with the whole world. I, I remember... Uh, teaching in other countries and how stark it was for me to teach in other countries mm. uh, the scripture. You know, I'm teaching uh, Ukrainian students. This was in the early 90s when they were living on $10 US a month. This is what they were living on. They were destitute. And I'm teaching them out of the, out of, uh, the, the book of James about, about uh, poverty and the wages and mm. all the different stuff. And, I, and it's occurring to me how visceral this is with these people. Yeah. So you're right, around the world, deep into history. But for us here, we, just, we simply need to get familiar with Jesus. You know, we really yeah. don't have him in front of us. Um, we're, we're listening to a lot of talks and a lot of media, but, you know, the Gospels are there for us, and we have access. But the truth is, we're not reading the Gospels. Mm. 
Not really. Okay, I, I just I want yeah. to dig into what you just said. Yeah. So important. Um, it's it's hearing voices from other places, but also reading in different places, right? Yes. Um, Lauren Winner, who's a scholar, she talks about this great phrase, dislocated exegesis. So exegesis is just like the you know studying um, what a passage means, kind of thing. And she talks about how reading your Bible in different places, the same passage in different places, yeah. will inevitably bring up different things. Um, so, you know, if you're reading about the oppressed go free in a park, it's different than reading that same thing in front of a detention center where illegal immigrants are being detained, for example, or in a prison or all these places. So I, I love that you, ha- that you said that because we have that opportunity to read in different locations as well. Yeah, and different life circumstances. That's why we keep circling around it, right? Yeah. We keep coming back to it and, and we'll read the same passage in a different life circumstance. Mm. So it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. But what I, I believe in is there's two keys to spiritual formation, imitation and participation. The first thing in imitation is we have to have Jesus clearly before our eyes. Mm. We have to have him clearly before our eyes, the real Jesus. So how are we gonna do that best? I mean, so the gospels are the best start then we need teachers and we need help. And then participation is the next step is how do we, we start to enter into when Jesus calls us to do things, we do them. Yeah. And that's how we learn. We, we, Jesus clearly before our eyes so we can learn of him and imitate him and then participate in his life and we'll, we'll, we'll deepen into the, into the life of Jesus by those two words, imitation and participation. Love. Keys to, to Love moving it. forward. Love it. But it's a really... Fantastic question. Such a How question. do we... So, so sometimes I tell people, it's an old book now, but it's, you know, you have to think about where we are in our reading levels, but a good place to start is something like Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew. I know totally. it's old, it's, but he just said, you know, he just went back and reread Jesus. Philip Yancey, who grew up in a Christian culture, and it was a racist Christian culture, he admits. He went back to rereading the Gospels and say... And, and asking the question, what is, if, I, if I looked again at the, the Jesus that I thought I knew or assumed I knew, who is the real Jesus? So that's a good approach, and there are lots of others too. That, got me, that book, I think, um, there was a few Philip Yancey books. I read them, and that's how I got into theology. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll double that. Yeah. Let's give a, one more question or comment, um, and, then, and then we have some snacks. <laughs> so, um, do we have anything else? Yeah, here we go. Um, yeah, so how, how do you take the gospel message that's always reiterated of making disciples of all nations and how that's like a big theme of, of like why we're here and also when you're talking about pluralism and coexisting with other religions and talking mm. about do Jews, Muslims, and Christians worship the same God and how do you take those conversations and get into the how are we still making disciples of all nations if we're just agreeing with everybody? Yes, this is an awesome question. I have thoughts, but I will defer to you first, Bob. <laughs> well, um, it doesn't mean we agree. I mean, I don't, as I said before, I, I don't agree with myself. <laughs> um, and I love my wife and we don't agree. No. And then there's my children. I'm sitting, I've got two grown children, you know, in their 30s now. And it was a few years ago, we were having some conversation and I disagreed with my daughter. And I said, I don't know how you can think that way. And she said, well, you taught us to have our own minds, dad. So Mm. there you go. And I said, rats. Mm. (laughs) So I don't know if if we have to be unanimous, but we have to listen we have to honor what is true so that we can find common ground. Because if everything a person says is wrong, well, how would, how would we find a point to meet, to move together towards some truth? So there has to be common ground. There has to be things that we agree on. This is the interesting part about the religions. There's a lot in sort of in traditional religion that would speak to ethical life, family life, marriage, that, you know, it's just such a good common ground for us. Yeah. So I think 
it's not about affirming everything in other viewpoints. It, it's about sharing what we can share and then finding those points where we might uh, zero in because, you know, what happens is the discussions get clouded because the wrong things are being discussed. <laughs> so we need to zero in on what, what matters to discuss. Um, if we say that we share the same God with, uh, I, I, I believe it's still an open question. I, I read Wolf. It's an open question about, you know, how we conceptualize God. Um, but there's really fruitful discussion to have there. To have that conversation in a fruitful way advances, it, it helps us move along, right? It helps us move along to clarify issues. And we can do that in a peaceable way. And that is part of our witness, actually. I would say that this is our witness. Yeah. Our witness is to clarify what we're talking about. Mm. <laughs> our witness is not to cloud it with a lot of shouting and, and uh, a lot of disagreement so we need to find common ground and then uh, we, need to sh- we need to evidence that we are people of uh, we were not, we're not just, um, just talking loudly and boisterously yeah. but there's actually something there too we, we generally want to make peace and we, we generally want the truth which means that we have to show repentance and we have to change if we never change in our viewpoints, then we're not really truth seekers, are we? Right. If we're just hardened up in our opinions, we're not really truth seekers. Good point. Yeah. So that was a lot of words, but... No, I think that's amazing. The, for me, I think... Okay, your questions are dead on tonight. These are such yeah. good questions. I think one of the key tasks of the church now is to rethink evangelism and to rethink mission. I don't think we need to abandon it, but I think we need to rethink what we mean by that. Um, I, won't get in, I won't get into it completely. Uh, Acts 2, so I'm, I'm Pentecostal. We talk about speaking in tongues, and, and that might freak some of you out. That's fine. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things, though, that we've ignored, uh, Pentecostals, it's like, hey, you're getting power to go out and proclaim. Um, but interestingly, uh, all the power in Acts 2 was although operating through the people being filled with the Spirit, the agency was actually in the hearer, where it says that all of these people, and it names all the different nations, um, that they heard them in their own tongue, right? So it wasn't a... Um, what, we, what colonialism did is say, we're going to present the gospel to you, and you have to learn our language. In fact, we're going to force you to learn our... This is residential schools. We're going to strip you of your culture. We're going to strip you of your language, all these other things. Um, what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the opposite of that, where the people heard the truth of the gospel, but in their own language. And so God met them. Uh, the agency was given to them. Um, there's so much more to say about that. But uh, when you asked the question, immediately I thought of Luke 10. And this text has been blowing me away lately. Um, So it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out uh, two by two ahead of him into every town and place he was about to go. And he told them, and and if you've grown up in kind of an evangelical or charismatic Pentecostal church, you're probably very familiar with what Jesus said. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Uh, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Now listen to this. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If the head of the house loves peace, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Now listen. Stay there. So, so far, nothing about proclaiming the gospel. Okay. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For workers deserve their wages. Do not move around from house to house. He goes on. When you enter a town, and here it is again, and are welcomed, eat whatever is set before you. Two times now. uh, He's saying, and why is food so significant? Because food is a cultural signifier, right? When we talk about going to choose a restaurant, where is, you know, we say, what do you want? Do you want like Thai? Do you want, you know, Ethiopian? Do we want to get some like American pub food? Because food is so deeply tied with culture. So now twice we're told, go and eat and drink whatever's set before you. 
Only after that's said two times, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town, not welcome, going to the streets, you know, the whole um, wiping the dust from your feet, all of this kind of thing. Um, and th- so just to break this down, he says, before you go and do any ministry, including even healing, receive hospitality. And so the point for me here is when it comes to evangelism and it comes to making disciples of all nations, we go as guests and not hosts. When we go out, and this is David Fitch, we'll talk about this. We go as a guest into the world. Our problem and where much of the church is disintegrating now is because we always assume the role of host. And we went out into other nations, into other cultures as hosts instead of guests. We insisted they eat our food instead of eating their food. Now look at this, and then I'm, I'm done, I promise. Um, so we go through a, a bunch of things, and then he turned um, to his disciples. Um, and wait a second, sorry, I've, I've gone too far. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. So they're all rejoicing and happy. They say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome evil power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Get this, demonic spirits, they're rejoicing. The demons even submit to us. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not rejoice that demons submit to you. This is stunning to me. Um, I like, look, I've seen Satan fall like lightning. Do not rejoice in it, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Just be rejoiced that you also are welcomed here. And I find this utterly instructive and fascinating. The minute submissive language enters their mouths, even though it's about demons, Jesus says, stop. We don't rejoice in submission. We don't rejoice in anything submitting to us. Just be thankful (laughs) that you've been welcomed to the kingdom of God. And to me, so this is this whole idea of going always as guests and, and not as hosts. And then we pray for God to open up space. And when there's an open space, um, we step into that space and see what God will do by the Spirit. And I, um, I'm leaning more and more into post-colonial um, type thinking, I, but I'm more excited to share Jesus than ever in my life. Okay, so that is our first Convergent Conversation. Now, the next episode will be a sermon by Dr. A.J. Swoboda on deconstruction. He joins us live on Zoom in the room to talk on the topic, Jesus Says, Change Your Mind. So we're going to have our next Convergent Conversations event on October 28th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Join us live in the room or live on Zoom. For more details, check us out on Instagram. Our handle is the underscore convergence underscore YYC. The underscore convergence underscore YYC. Can't wait to hear your questions about deconstruction. Until then, grace and peace.